This morning, I want you to actually, it's, it's going to take a little bit, but I want you to turn to three different passages of Scripture. Okay? So turn to Leviticus 2, that's going to be near the front, in uh, the first five books there, and that's Leviticus uh, 2 and verse 13. And then plug a finger there, and then go to Isaiah 42. <clears throat> and we'll be looking at verse 6 there. So Leviticus 2 and 13 and Isaiah 42, 6. Now get another finger ready and go to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 13 and 16. Forgive me, 13 through 16. You know, preaching is, a, is sort of a funny thing. Uh, it's not a lecture. It's not a teaching per se. But instead, it's, it's supposed to represent Christ. Through preaching, God's Word goes forth and Jesus is represented. And, uh, you know, any preacher that's a good preacher will tell you that they never feel like they can do that well. Uh, Dr. Kinlaw tells the story, Dennis Kinlaw, he tells the story of how he saw a newspaper article called The Greatest Story Told, Told Poorly. And he said, that's how I feel every time I finish preaching is the greatest story ever, but it was told very poorly. And any good preacher is, is acquainted with that for sure because um, it is a humbling act to try and communicate the Word of God to people, but it's something He's called us to. And it's something we're going to try to do this morning. Notice Leviticus first, uh, to, chapter 2, if you're there. And then uh, Isaiah is the next one. And then Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll go. Look here in Leviticus 2 and 13. Notice what it says. As soon as I got there. I forgot to look it up while I I was telling you to do that. Leviticus 2 and 13 says this, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Then go to Isaiah 42 and verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And then finally, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Jesus, through the foolishness of preaching, as Paul says, may we see You. 
May we be inspired not by a human voice, but by Your voice that speaks in the heart. Say things this morning. Prompt people this morning that I don't even say. And may we respond to that Word by not grieving Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I was introduced to a fellow who, uh, just online, um, I haven't ever met him, who's actually an engineer here in Alabama. And he was doing some work in Amsterdam. And, uh, you know, he, he's your typical engineer guy. And so you, you probably know that, what that's like because uh, there's a lot of engineers in this room. And if, you, there's not, if you're not an engineer yourself, you've definitely met them and relate to them often. Uh, and so he, he said that he was in Amsterdam and he had his welders that played a trick on him. They said, I bet you can't ride that bike over there. He said, of course I can ride a bike. I've been riding the bike since I had the MacGyver uh, mullet back in the day, you know, in the 80s. Um, I can ride a bike, I, you know, even though I hadn't rode one in a long time, I can still jump on there and ride. They said, no, you can't. Uh, and so he, he, he goes over there, he tries the bike out, and lo and behold, he cannot ride the bike. Maybe you've seen this video, you can go look it up. What they did to his bike was they engineered it differently so that an engineer's mind could not ride that bike. And all they did was they simply shifted. When you turn right, it actually goes left. And when you turn left, it actually goes right. They just changed one little thing on that bike and he could not ride it. Now, he determined at that point to try and ride it once he got home. It took him eight months of every single day practicing on that bike in order to learn it. Now, he also made his own son a bike who his son was like six, and his son was able to learn to ride it in two weeks because of the plasticity of a young mind. But the algorithm that actually controls how to ride a bike is very difficult to unwind and unlearn. And once he actually learned how to ride that bike, he got back on another bike in Amsterdam and actually couldn't ride it. A regular bike. Now you say, why are you telling me that story? Because we need to be converted. That's why. We need conversion. But we've lived our life the way we want to live it for so long. We've programmed our mind, our very bodies, to certain things, to a certain way of life, and God calls us to be converted. But that's going to take some serious work by the Holy Spirit. It's going to take time. It's not just a one-time thing where you come to the altar and everything is changed and you're done and now you can go home and continue your life as it was because that's not going to happen. This is a call to conversion. It's the same call people heard when Jesus would walk by and He would call them by name to be His disciple. That meant they were leaving the old behind and learning something new. Going into something new. Doing something new. Being someone who is new. You see, we need the Holy Spirit's conversion in our life. We need His sanctifying grace in our life to continually be converted over the years. There are things, trust me, in your life as there are in my life that I can't even see right now. 
They've not popped their head up just yet. I'm not old enough. I've not experienced that. I've not been put in that situation yet. But when it comes, God's going to call me to the floor. Like I shared with you two weeks ago, He called me to task. He said, alright, we're going to the woodshed. And he, he dropped something on me as I was doing a run that, I, that was not even anywhere on my radar. No way. It, was, it had been buried. It was done as far as I'm concerned. But until he got involved, it wasn't done. And I had to make amends. And that week, it actually came to Saturday. And, uh, and you know, we had went to the beach that week. Um, and, and I got to Saturday and the Lord's like, okay, so you're just going to tell everybody that you're going to do something, not do it? Okay, well, here goes the phone call. You've had those moments where you had to bear all, where you had to lay yourself out. Whether right or wrong, you ask for forgiveness. You lay yourself out. You get rid of yourself. That's the whole design here about being converted, is it's not about me. But we live a life that is centered on me this individualistic, our movies play to it, our TV play. You already know how self-centered you can be. I don't have to explain it or try to prove the point this morning. You yourself have been fed up with yourself at times. And what I'm saying this morning is God calls us to be converted. But that's going to take something. Just like this guy with a bike, it's going to take relearning how to do everything from how to treat people to our attitudes to what we say to how we go to work to how we look at each other to how we forgive everything in your life must be converted everything there's not one point in your life that you can hide for yourself and keep for yourself whatever you keep for yourself goes to hell and I'm not using that derogatorily I'm literally saying That's why Jesus says you must be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. He's not kidding. That is a call to all Christians. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. His very first sermon that Matthew records for us, which is an extended sermon, which isn't the whole picture, by the way. It's actually more than likely way longer than this. This is the summary that we get. And he says, be ye perfect. Lewis, C.S. Lewis comes in very helpful here and he says... You know, when we have a toothache, we want just some medicine to take care of the ache. We go to the dentist just expecting, hey, just give me some meds. I just need this pain to simply go away. He says, no, we're going to take the tooth. He said, no, 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 no. It's not what I signed up for. I just want the meds. I don't want to take the tooth. And God says, it's not going to be fixed until we take the tooth. God is in the business of uprooting things in our life and throwing them away so that we can be healed. Because He knows that unless He does that, it may be the death of us. We need to be converted. And I think the words here that Jesus say are some of the most powerful words. You already know that they're the most, some of the most beautiful images. Salt of the earth. Light of the world. They find themselves in our common language even. The salt of the earth. Being a light to others. It, you find these words even in modern secular songs. The term salary actually comes from salt. Look it up. And I don't want to give you some you know, dissertation this morning on salt, although I could probably 
tell you some things that you probably didn't know, and I didn't know before two weeks ago, but the reality is salt is something that is so common in their world and so common in your world. I guarantee if I go to your house and ask for salt today for dinner, you've got it somewhere in your home. And if we don't, we can go to Publix, and they've got a whole lot of that stuff everywhere. And everything that we do seems to have this thing of salt in there. What does Jesus mean by this thing of salt? Why salt? Why use this image? Well, I think the roots, as we just saw, actually in the Old Testament. Notice that every single sacrifice ever made. I don't mean just the day of Passover, which was one day a year. I mean the weekly ones the ones that were done daily, the ones that were done when you unintentionally sinned. We're talking about millions and millions of sacrifices made over the life of Israel all the way into Jesus. Every single one of them were salted. Every sacrifice, they would have put salt on it. You may have missed it in Leviticus. It's kind of tucked away there. But every single sacrifice had salt. It was ever before their eyes. Now, they would have understood salt slightly different than most of us do. We think of salt in a sense it's on the table so that you can add flavor to your food. That is not the way ancients understood salt. You see, we, I think, have made the mistake in Christendom of also thinking that Christianity simply adds something to my life. No, no, no. You've completely misunderstood Christianity if you think you just add Jesus or add Christianity to your life. People that want to add it like yoga. No. Add it like an accessory to your life. Add it as if it's going to improve your life. Let me tell you something up front so as not to be some kind of, you know, uh, used car salesman pitch is that it's going to cost you everything to follow Jesus. Your money, your talents, your time, your sacrifice, your love, your relationships, your sexuality. This thing goes deep down to the very you who I'm talking to, who hears my voice, who can interpret what's being said today. It's going to cost you your life. And Jesus is very clear about this with people. People actually come to Him. It's fascinating because we we try to entice people into Christianity. He says this, you can't follow Me because you're not worthy. We wouldn't really say that to somebody, would we? But there's this episode where Jesus, these three guys approach Him and they all say, hey, i got to go bury my father. He says, okay, well, you're not worthy to follow Me then. We say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Another guy comes to me and says, hey, I'm ready to, ready to sacrifice everything. He says, you realize I don't even have a place to lay my head tonight? Can't follow me. We've made Christianity into idolatry. We are in charge of our Christianity. We define what we give and how much and when and where. What we have to allow to happen is that fire to take over. Hebrews says that God is an all-consuming fire. Notice, all-consuming. And yet He invites us into the blast furnace. I mean, how crazy is that? 
He invites us into the fire and we say, hey, we're just a hair follicle. We're going to melt. We're going to burn up. We're not going to be able to sustain it. We're not going to be able to do this. And yet there are the examples in the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who walk through the fire and then the king goes over and says, whoa, whoa, there's a fourth person in there. Who is this? It looks as if he is one of the sons of God. And it was. It was the pre-incarnate Christ Himself in the fire with them. They came out and the Bible says they didn't even smell like smoke. He invites us into His blast furnace. But what that means is we're no longer in control. It's not my party. It's not my show. It's not my life. These are not my kids. This is not my job. This is not my house to do with it how I please. Instead, it's yours. It's an openness to life where we don't go through life with clenched fist, but openness. Open hands, open heart. You see, we've been talking about how we're in a battle. And the only way the battle is won is through saints. That's God's answer. Holy ones. That term saint in the Bible is actually holy ones. Now, it's not some idea of a holy statue where where we want people just to simply look at us, but instead it's a living sacrifice. You ever thought about how oxymoronic that is? I mean, we don't really do sacrifices, so it's hard for us to enter into that. But a sacrifice is something that is deemed dead. (laughs) Um, you know, when you if you're the sacrifice at a tribal party, that's not a good thing. Like you need to be trying to get out of there. I'm just going to tell you that from a world religions perspective. Like if they all of a sudden say, "Hey, you're our new sacrifice," then that's not a good thing. You don't say, "Oh yeah, cool." What's that mean? No, that means you're going to be for dinner. Um, the Bible says we must be living <clears throat> sacrifices, literally, if you will. Walking dead. In other words, we are dead to this life and alive to Christ. Dead to myself and alive to Him. If we do not go through that death, we'll never receive His life. The secret weapon here is the church. That's how God's going to do it. If there's going to be transformation in culture, it's going to happen through the church. Why? Because that's His body. That's how He reaches out into the world. When He says, this is the body of Christ, when I say to you, representing Christ here, this is His body, that means you are His body and you're taking His body to the world. That is not just meant to be imagery, but a reality. So, salt... What does salt do for the ancients? Not just add flavor. No, no, no. Preserve. Now, you've all probably had one of those hams that have been heavily salted. Uh, You know, the ones that they don't have to refrigerate. You just buy it and it's like, is this okay to eat? Well, yeah, because it's been heavily salted. That's why the ancients understood this. They used salt as their refrigerator. They didn't have a refrigerator. They couldn't whip up some ice. So instead, they use salt. Dennis Kinlaw, again, uh, an author that I love, he said when he was a young boy, 
they used to have a, uh, a, a, um, a house where they kept all their meats hanging. And this is back in the Great Depression. And they had salt that they would have to rub into the pork. So then when they would, when they would kill one of their pigs and then have to, have to you know, they butchered it then and hung it in there, he would, his job was to actually rub the salt in so that it wouldn't decay, so that it wouldn't corrupt. And so he said one day he was in a hurry and he smelled the bacon that his mom was cooking. So he's like, I'm going to hurry up and salt this thing real quick. He hung the, the piece of meat up and he went in, forgot about it. A couple weeks later, his mom says, hey, let's have bacon again this morning. Go grab the bacon. And we're all saying, amen, right? Uh, if you like bacon. And, and uh, so he goes out there, his, he brings it in, lays it down. His mom cuts into it maggots. And just imagine having your mind set on bacon and then seeing that come out. And, she, and he says he'll never forget what she said. Kinlaw, more salt. Can I submit something to you this morning? Our culture is decaying before us. It's rotting away from how history is portrayed to science, to philosophy, to our education. There's not one section or sector of our culture that is not rotting away. But you know what? That's not the new news. That's old news. Every culture rots away if there's not salt involved. And Jesus says here, you, that means you who I'm looking at and pointing at, you are the salt of the earth. Notice that it's not the salt of heaven. Instead, the salt of earth. That means we must be sprinkled about in the relationships at our work. We must be sprinkled about in our families. In some instances, we must be rubbed into those bad situations in life. We need to be poured on education. Poured into our children so that we stop the rot. It is rotting away. It tends excuse me, to decay. But our job as salt is to be poured, to be sprinkled, to be rubbed into those wounds. Every aspect of our life. I had a professor at seminary, Matt Friedemann, who said, said this, you know, he said, when decency shows up, people want to be more decent. Now just think about that. There's people over here telling a joke making fun of a certain group of people and using expletives or bad language. And they know you're a Christian. They know you don't use that language. They know you don't talk about people like that. And you come up. What happens? People get quiet. I mean, I see it in my own life. You've seen it in your life. When I walk up, they find out I'm a pastor, language begins to change. Why? Salt. That's why. Salt. It preserves... They're about to do something where they throw people under the bus. Where they make themselves feel better by making other people less than them. They're going to build themselves up by themselves while stepping on other people. But you come in and stop that. You stop that decay. You stop the enemy in his tracks because you're salt. That's how it happens. You don't participate. You don't laugh. You don't jeer. You don't gossip. Instead, you're salt. 
And we need to be sprinkled. Don't we in our workplaces? Don't we in our families? Instead of the bickering and complaining, what if we were salt? He further, Matt Friedemann, took a group of seminary students to the strip club in Jackson, Mississippi. And they stu- all they did was stand there as people came in and said, we're praying for you. That's it. They didn't hold protest signs. They just stood there. Decent folk. And you know what happened? People would drive in and turn around and leave. What happened? The bouncer came out, found out what they were doing, and was actually converted to Jesus Christ. Came to the chapel service at Wesley College. What happened? The strippers themselves, the ladies, were actually ministered to by a group of ladies. You say, why would you do that? Because everybody needs salt. They're decaying away. People around you literally are rotting away in sin. And our job is to be rubbed into their life as salt. That's what he means. That's what your calling is. Why light? (laughs) Well, we can't live without light. But Jesus is the true light. And what John says is something very interesting. He says in John 1... It still, it still boggles my mind. He says, Jesus is the light that lights every man coming into the world. Now, I don't know what to do with that. All. I know some things to do with it. But that's a pretty incredible statement, isn't it? Jesus lights every person coming into the world. But you've seen that light go out, haven't you? I have put that light out in people's lives by my words. By my actions, I've literally seen someone's countenance fall because I was making fun of them or because of what I said to them or because of how I treated them. I saw that light diminish. Our job is not to bring darkness to situations. Not to bring confusion to situations, but clarity. That's what the light does. I used to essentially live on the, at the, in the weekends with my, with my Mimo and Pappy. And I'll never forget, I was in the very back room. He had this long hallway that had the wood paneling, so it didn't really reflect light very well. And I would, you know, want something to drink. I would stay up later than they would. They'd be already in the bed. And I'd go to the kitchen, which, again, was down that long hallway. And, and one of the things I always noticed, and the Lord taught me over the years, and I still have that image seared in my mind, was when I walked away from the light into darkness, it was always more difficult to see. But as I went back to my room and the light was shining toward me, it was always easier to follow. And it's a simple lesson. But it's something I think we need to take heart of. Don't walk away from the light. You say, how do you do that? Remain in the means of grace. That's how. You want. You say, what do I do? You know, because mo- most sermons you have to. You, you can't get down to just you know the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. You say, what? I, remain in the means or the ways of grace. What are those ways? Worship. Pray. You know. Let me think. 
12 years ago, I first talked to Jessica. It was the first time I ever met her. I was at church. And, you know, I haven't stopped talking to her for 12 years. Like, we've been talking for 12 years. That's a long time, isn't it? So I started talking to her, and I didn't stop. And I still haven't stopped, and I'm not going to stop. As my pappy always said, if she ever packs up and leaves, I'm going with her. What's the point here? We are called to pray and never stop. Never stop. Pray and never stop. That's a means of grace. What else? Acts of service. When you serve others, God's grace can flood your life with light. You are being a light. Giving. Here's what Jesus says. You're a city that's set on a hill. We live in a culture that tells us your faith is something private. You should do that at home. You should do that at your church. And it's getting more claustrophobic if you've noticed. Don't do that here. That's not welcome here. But we are called not to hide that light. Many things will come against us in this life. But let me tell you something. Do not be ashamed of Jesus in this life. Please don't be ashamed of Jesus. Because He says, if you're ashamed of Me in this adulterous and sinful generation, then I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come with the Calvary. Do not do that. Let your light shine. There's no way God can be living in you and people not know it. That's literally impossible. There's no way to hold that down, to contain that. Again, if there's a fire burning in you, fire's not something that's easily contained. And the more dead you are, the more you're going to blaze. You know how I know that? Because I like to burn Christmas trees. And there was this one time where we used to, in my backyard, I can't do this anymore in my HOA, but uh, I used to have a backyard where we would, we actually lit up three very dead Christmas trees all at once. And I mean the flame was higher than this building. That's no joke. It was unbelievable. But it was because it was dead. You ever cut down a tree and try to burn that wood? Very, very slow. Not going to burn well at all. Dead wood burns the best. Point, we must be dead if we're going to be a light. If we're going to burn for Jesus, we must be a light. But, but too many of us are like the moon where we're reflecting God's light, but the earth gets in the way. We're just a little fingernail of what we could be. We're called to be fully His, but we allow the world to get in the way. Don't. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be salt to the world. Notice again, salt of the earth, light of the what? World. That means that Christianity is a social religion. We are called to others. This is not about us. It's not about your salvation. It's not about your whatever. It's about Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, He's about other people. He's always on the move. He's going to say, come serve with me. This is what we're doing. This is where we're going. John and Charles Wesley were a part of what was called the Great Awakening. Just simply two guys who wanted to see God move and allow God to move in them. 
Now, there were a lot of other people that were involved in the Great Awakening, but these two people actually did something that helped people long term. You want to know what it is? It's another means of grace called small groups. It's a very Wesleyan idea. George Whitfield was a better preacher than Wesley, had more converts at the moment than Wesley, and yet at the end of his life he said, My whole ministry is a rope of sand. Why? Because I didn't connect people to each other in small groups like Mr. Wesley did. He literally says that in his journal. One of the most famous sayings. What am I trying to say to you? If you don't get connected in small groups to the church, you're going to be that that coal of fire that's off by itself. It will burn out. But when you gather them together, you're going to form a blaze. And God's going to be able to do something because it's not about you. It's about others. Others. So, this morning is this word going to fall on good soil or bad soil? Let me read you very briefly a letter I got from my sponsored child in Nicaragua, Franklin. We call him Frank for obvious reasons in our house. He says, I'm happy to write to you again. Thank you for your gift. It was a big blessing for me. I bought a fan, a shirt, and two pairs of socks. That was his birthday. I'm very happy about all your blessings for me. Thank you for your prayers. My family is together and happy. I always go to church and Sunday school. I'm doing well at school. In the project, I'm learning the parable of the sower. I want to be the good soil to produce good crops. Do you know the parable of the sower? I ask you to always pray for me and my family. I love, I'm sorry, I hope God bless you always. Much love, your child, Franklin. When I read that this past week, the Lord asked me, Do you know the parable of the sower? I said, Of course I do. I can, I can preach to them that drop of a hat. No, 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 no. Are you desiring what Franklin desires. I want to be the good soil to produce good crops. That's what our name Harvest Point means. You know that, right? And yet here's God pointing a finger at me who's supposed to hold the vision together saying, do you really want that? Do you want to be salt to your family? to your children, to your brothers and sisters, to your co-workers, to the world, light to those who are diminishing in darkness, living in darkness. If you want to be that light, that salt, if you want to be the answer to the problems rather than the complainer, today is your day. Today is it. He can do it in here. I can't do it. I've already told you, I need help myself. The Holy Spirit, though, can break out in your life. And look, it's not my job to tell everybody what to do. But instead, we're here to both listen to the Spirit. He's got work for you to do. In your job, in your life, in your family. He's got work for you to do. Not me, not somebody else. Not somebody down the pew, the chairs, 
but instead you. Will it find this morning good soil? It can. What God can do in you is birth something new. Convert you fully. You think you've already been converted. You say, I'm already a convert. No, no. It doesn't stop with that initial prayer. That's the beginning. I'm still learning to be a husband. Trust me, just ask Jessica. We're not done yet. I'm still learning to be a Christ follower. Are you willing to answer Jesus' call to follow me? Let me tell you something. When you do answer that call, you're going to smile. You're going to be a smiling, just like I told the kids. And some of us just need to simply smile at people. Not out of a falsity, but out of a true joy. A heart of love. A heart of abundance. Listen, folks, there's good news this morning. There's good news for you and for everybody else around you. Let's grab that good news. Today is the day of salvation. Do not delay His call. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the holy fire. Amen.